All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And transmitting from the humid and hot confines of the concrete jungle known as New York City, this is the Mars Magazine Podcast. I am Adario Strange here with... Big Song. And this week we have a grab bag of fun science fiction, technology, and science goodies. But first we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to call back to last week, um, uh, David Harbour, uh, a.k.a. Chief Jim Hopper from the hit Netflix series Stranger Things was good enough to join us. And I just wanted to bring up um, an interesting uh, factoid I stumbled up- upon on uh, Business Insider. And uh, they reported on, um, let's see, a research study from Symphony AM that says uh, in the first 16 days after the release of Stranger Things, it racked up 8.2 million people uh, or viewers. And according to Symphony AM, that is uh, more successful than, uh, let's see, Daredevil, Jessica Jones and Narcos and the big one. House of Cards. And I just, the main thing I want to bring that up right from the top is I remember uh, mentioning that to David Harbour that this was like, you know, that Stranger Things seems like the popularity seemed to be on par uh, with House of Cards. And he seemed very surprised by that. And so this is the data. The data is out there from Symphony Uh AM that not only is it on par, but it has surpassed uh, House of uh, House of Cards. So yeah, Stranger Things doing big things. And if you haven't seen it, um, go check it out. If you have seen it and you want a little bit more insight, uh, go back to episode 17 and uh, check out the interview with David Harbour. And then afterwards, um, Vic and I dive in and break down kind of what's happening. Uh, So now in the news this week, we had a couple of interesting things. First off, though, (laughs) an unfortunate occurrence uh, happened with Snapchat. They put out uh, every so often they'll put out um, themed filters where you can hold up your phone, you know, using the app, you can hold the phone up to your face and kind of record yourself looking a different way. This past week, they put out a filter. I don't know what the name of it is, but it gained the name uh, Yellow Face because basically what it did was it put an anime or what Snapchat is calling an anime style face on your face, on your re- on your real face. And the face, the filter had like really squinty eyes. It um, kind of made your face kind of fat. It, it made your nose really tiny. And buck teeth. I, I feel like it made, yeah, it looked like it made your lips a little like, you know, squishy bigger a little bit. And then, yeah, as, as, as Vic just said, you, it gave you buck teeth. And this just resulted in a firestorm. People called them out on it. It was called racist. Um, I, there's one article I read on The Guardian, and they said they got a statement from Snapchat. And according to Snapchat, it was, quote, unquote, anime ins- an, an anime-inspired lens and that it has already expired, so you can't get it. And they claim it won't be put back into circulation. And um, the other statement, official statement that they gave to The Guardian is, uh, lenses are meant to be playful and never to offend. And that's it. If there's an apology out there or some sort of are bad or something, I, there's, I haven't seen it. So Vic song, what was yeah. your, like, where, where'd you see this? How'd this come across your, uh, I saw it in my Twitter feed. Mm. I was just like scrolling innocently through my Twitter feed, looking for interesting tidbits of tech news. And then I saw the picture 
Um, and I think the picture that you see most frequently when you look up uh, this story in the news is kind of like a split screen of a really old racist coolie cartoon and uh, a girl who's put this Snapchat filter like in her selfie and the side by side comparison. And then, you know, the, the actual tweet was something like Snapchat racist filter did it again. And literally all the energy, and I was in a, like a good mood. I was I was going to be crushing it. It was it was awesome. All my energy just out the window. I just saw it, and it was just like, oh no, not this crap again. A lot of people compare this to another filter that Snapchat released. Um, I believe it was for 420 Day, uh, which is known uh, widely as Weed Day. <laughs> and um, there was a filter where you could kind of put the face of Bob Marley on your face and it kind of blended his face with your face. Now, a lot of people uh, called that blackface or form of blackface and racist. And um, uh, well, here's the problem is his family, Bob Marley's family signed off on it. So it's kind of, it, it's, it's a little bit blurry there. And also it, it wasn't really this kind of, um, I don't know, I guess maybe I, I feel differently about it. I felt like it was kind of, inappropriate more so to connect Bob Marley with weed, you know, as opposed yeah. to his great, you know, legacy of music. Nevertheless, you know, so that was the instant callback for a lot of people and Snapchat got called out on that. So when this came up, a lot of people kind of seem to have the opinion that, well, Snapchat still hasn't learned its lesson. And another thing that kind of, so I immediately delved into kind of the company culture, like, What's Evan Spiegel's view on this whole mm -hmm. thing with the tech community regarding diversity? And um, I, yeah, I've read some comments that, you know, he doesn't seem to think that that's, you know, necessarily something they need to be that aggressive on. They see he feels that he already has like a diverse workforce in terms of its talents. Um, I know they're based in Venice, California. You know, actually, um, their co-founder, one of the app's co-founders, Bobby Murphy, is Filipino-American. So it's not like they don't have Asian people on staff. Now, have you, does, do you know, did you check his Twitter feed? Did you, like, has he commented on this whole thing? I didn't check his Twitter feed. Um, I saw that particular factoid in, I think, a Washington Post article on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was just kind of insane because, you know, um, I think last year Evan Spiegel was talking at a Recode, uh, you know, the annual Recode tech conference. And he was like, I should have numbers for you on the diversity of my company, but I don't, which is kind of crazy because a lot of tech companies put out their diversity numbers, even if they're not particularly good because, you know, they say Silicon Valley is not exactly friendly to people of color, but you know, like right now in the popular culture, there has been like more conversation about how we portray Asian Americans in media. And the thing about this particular filter and the way it looks, it very much harkens back to some of the racist imagery that you would see from the World War II era. So it's, you know, you could at least argue with the Bob Marley filter that, you know, they went with his estate. They were trying to do something that was a little more tributary. There's no good memories associated with that kind of imagery that they've put in this particular Snapchat filter. What it makes me think is that there's a vacuum of culture because, you know, similar to like when you see like publication sites publish certain types of stories um, that are insensitive, be it gender, race, uh, sexual orientation. If you don't have a diversity of opinion and perspective around you, 
Yeah. I mean, whether or not you meant to offend, you, you know, often you'll have a blind spot, you know, and you maybe you don't even have a person to ask, hey, is this wrongheaded? Am I being, mm-hmm. you know, am I off here? So that was the first thing I thought. You know, after the initial kind of, I don't want to say shock, but the initial exhaustion of like, oh my God, this is happening again, kind of faded away and I was thinking about it. You know, um, Snapchat filters, they're a real kind of a, I, I don't want to say a phenomenon, but they're they're a big trend. Like you see people, like I see my friends do it all the time. They absolutely love it, especially the sillier ones. And it actually got me thinking to this book by Neil Stevenson, Snow Crash. Uh, one of my favorite books. So it's pretty cyberpunk. Um, and just one of the things in Snow Crash is that the the protagonist, whose name is Hero Protagonist, I believe, um, you know, he goes into the kind of a virtual reality cyber world type thing and people have avatars. So I was just thinking, you know, these Snapchat filters, they could be kind of a precursor to that sort of thing now that virtual reality is kind of getting its wings and when we live in these virtual worlds, as I believe that we very soon will be, and we can have avatars. What's to stop someone from just kind of reinventing themselves as a different race? Oh, and yeah, for sure. Like, it just seems like, you know, you have on the one hand, you have social media like Facebook, which is kind of promoting you to like post as yourself. Like you remember um, uh, back in the day where they would it used to be with Facebook that you could create fake names and fake profile pages. And then they started to crack down on that because they want you to have your real name and kind of build your personal story and your personal brand. But that's not necessarily the internet culture of everywhere in the world. Like, um, you know, just to bring up Asia again, a lot of times in Asia, they will prefer to have an anonymous screen name or an anonymous, um, you know, just an anonymous presence that's very much removed from your personal identity. Like that's something that they want to keep secret. So like, let's say you have that kind of social media uh, atmosphere in a VR world in the future. What's to stop? Is it like actually harmful if let's say someone's like, oh, maybe I'll go out as a geisha and I'll wear an Asian avatar, even though I'm not Asian? and do that sort of thing. So I don't know, that kind of got me started thinking on that. Because obviously, people who made this Snapchat filter were not, they, they just didn't think that this was offensive. Well, to to your point, I think that's inevitable, uh, in terms of people assuming different identities, racial, gender. But I think the big deal in this case was that it appeared to be company approved or company sponsored. Mm -hmm. And you know, if someone wants to troll you for, you know, for whatever group you belong to, you know, religion, race, whatever, you know, that's an individual choice. And that person, you know, has to deal with the consequences. But when it's a company, that's, I think, what really puts a fine point on the whole thing for a lot of people, because it's kind of like, well, what it does is it kind of makes I'm not Asian, but if I had to just you know, put myself in the shoes of someone who's at work, who loves Snapchat, who uses it every day. Mm-hmm. And then they open that up and they see all these people using that uh, anime, so-called anime filter. What it would immediately make me think is, wait a minute, is Snapchat not for me? Right. But you know what's the interesting thing is I haven't – I've seen a lot of outrage online about the fact that Snapchat used this filter. But I haven't really seen – like within those reactions and maybe you've seen differently, I haven't really seen people go like, well, 
this is the thing that's going to make me delete Snapchat off my phone. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. like, so there's outrage, but not to the point where they're boycotting Snapchat. So I don't, I don't know. Does that mean Snapchat is too big to fail at this point with its demographic? Because it's got enough, or at least, I don't know, the stereotype is that at least among uh, millennials, does that mean that so many millennials are on Snapchat that they refuse to delete it, even though they have egregious transgressions in this way? It's kind of counter to the whole uh, politically correct culture that gets ascribed to millennials. So I, I find it a little surprising, but... Is it, I mean, is this a new conversation, though? Is it worth, you know, are, are all these sensitivities, all these, you know, online social media fueled outrages uh for various issues is it all just you know bluster bluster yeah i mean like <laughs> i mean i think it's bluster like i can't delete snapchat just because of like we're in the industry we talk about tech and if we don't know what's going on you know we can't really talk about it in a certain way but if i was not in this industry and i was just um someone who was just a casual user I, I would like to think that I would have just deleted the app because why would I keep that there? But I I think, I, you know, it's like a thing where back in the while everyone was just saying, well, you know, Facebook, eventually something will replace Facebook. But the thing that I think keeps Facebook going is just that so many people have been sucked into that medium and you just know all of your contacts on there that if you leave Facebook, you're kind of suffering from not being in that network. Okay, so Snapchat is essentially the Donald Trump of apps. It is indestructible, unstoppable. It can say and do anything, and you'll keep asking for more. Oh, God. <laughs> that is I mean, depressing. I mean, hey, you know, that, I mean, that sounds... I mean, basically, Snapchat is invincible. And just to be clear, we're not saying Evan Spiegel doesn't like non-white uh, yeah. people. From my understanding, he hasn't made any particular... Evan Spiegel being the CEO of Snapchat. To my understanding, he hasn't made any specific statement about the incident. I don't expect one to be forthcoming. He'd have to be crazy. Well, I, I think it would be a good move. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fan of Facebook. I don't particularly... Uh, you know, enjoy hearing um, Mark Zuckerberg speak. But what I do appreciate is that he's made greater efforts to at least appear transparent and and, right. and, and try to reach out to Facebook users, uh, whether it's like a Facebook Live one-on-one -on -one chat or through blog posts. So, I mean, the effort is appreciated. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how. Uh, and again, remember, Evan Spiegel's not really in the Silicon Valley community. He, uh, you know, his company. That's why I brought up the fact that they're in Venice Beach in California. They're in what's kind of this new tech startup world in Los Angeles. Some re people refer to as Silicon Beach. And in Venice, you know, there there is Google out there and there are a couple other companies, but basically they're kind of siloed off from much of the tech community. So I don't think that there's any like real pressure, like right. locally for them. Yeah. So I imagine like in the office, it's probably mostly media and kind of like this, you know, the impression of what's happening outside, uh, outside of California or outside of Los Angeles. But um Hopefully this incident will be another kind of red flag for them to kind of, hey, maybe we need to like rethink how we 
put out filters on Snapchat and uh, they'll be a little bit more careful in the future. Yeah. So we want to also talk about something else that came up this week that was a little bit more fun. I'm going to say a lot more fun. It was a lot more fun. Involving people putting on faces that are not their own, that have nothing to do with insulting people. And that is the second trailer for Star Wars Rogue One. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. I've been recruiting through the rebellion for a long time. We destroyed our home. I fight the Empire now. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. Every day they grow stronger. And so that is our latest look at Rogue One. Um, we got a brief glimpse of it uh, months ago, but this is like a definitely a better, more detailed look at um, what the film's going to be about. It's directed by Gareth Edwards. Uh, it's coming out this December, December 16th. Uh, resident Star Wars head lover, what'd you think? I was super into this trailer. The, the teaser that they released a couple of months ago, it was kind of just flashes of like, what the, the storyline would be. Like, if you are into Star Wars, like, the teaser trailer was great because you got glimpses of, like, Mon Mothma, who was the leader of the Rebels, the short-haired woman, the one who says in Return of the Jedi, many boffins died for to get this information. Um, so it was kind of cool in that sense, but you didn't really get a sense of who the characters are. Like, just from the trailer, you would have to go look up articles, which, you know, if you're a Star Wars head, you probably would. But this one, I think we got a greater sense of the tone of the film. It was a lot grittier looking. Everyone looked a little more dirty and in, in the trenches. You know, what was interesting was in the trailer, you see this um, this kind of martial arts dude played by Donnie Yen, who is pretty famous in Hong Kong. Uh, as uh, like in kung fu movies and what did he say if it will be as the force wills it and then he starts beating everyone's ass it was amazing yeah but you know i was thinking about it and this character exists in a time where the jedi are obsolete they're just like there's yoda on dagobah like in his little hut doing whatever it was that he was doing for all those years there's obi-wan on tatooine who's like creeping on luke making sure he's okay and those are like the last two jedi in in the system so for him to say that he's like the force will be as it wills it, he's not a Jedi. So I think this brings up some really kind of cool, maybe insights into um, like how the force works in that universe. Like you see in force awakens, Maz Kanata, I think she like makes reference to the fact that the force is everywhere. And then you also have Leia who's not a Jedi, but she can use the force. So I think it might be a cool look into how that, actually works whether you have to be a jedi to be able to use awesome force powers yeah and that was interesting in the trailer uh to your point about donnie yen's character he like there was no lightsaber because like when he went in that scene in the trailer and he walks up and utter you know issues that line i'm expecting that like you know the, the yeah. lightsaber to come out and no like and then they don't show that he just has a staff and they show the aftermath, and it's just him with a staff. And it was like, wait, what's going on here? You know? Yeah, and like the other thing about that is that 
you know, I think there's been some rumors, or at least, you know, Daisy Ridley, who plays Rey in uh, The Force Awakens, people have been asking her things, and she's like, am I a Jedi? I actually don't think I am. So that would be kind of, I think that would be a really great and interesting path for them to explore, so long as they don't get into the whole midichlorian bullshit from the from the the prequels, if you remember, like them explaining how Anakin had such great powers was because he had midichlorians in his blood, which was just like you stole that from mitochondria. Like, stop. So I mean, so let's go through the trailer. So we had um, Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker plays Saw Jarrera. Yeah, uh, he's like some sort of military vet. I think he showed up in something with to do with Clone Wars before. I'm not super well versed in that aspect there's like a million star wars things it's the first time we see like this weird half afro i don't think we've seen like any afro action in the star wars universe so that was kind of authentic <laughs> like a uh, half afro with a dash of gray a lightning bolt of gray uh we got ben mendelson who i love uh from um bloodline uh the netflix uh show bloodline ah. yeah he plays uh orson krennic and um, he doesn't have any lines in the trailer, but he's extremely sinister. Hmm. Um, did you recognize him from Bloodline? I did not. Yeah. I did not. Yeah, he's. I did, uh, I did recognize Diego Luna from Itumama Tambien. Ah, okay. I did not recognize him. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, I, that's like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Wow. What <laughs> has he been in anything else? Um. Yes, a really crappy movie called Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. <laughs> oh. Ouch. Okay. Uh, and then um, also there's um, – I don't think we saw him in the trailer, but Mads Mikkelsen is in the film. I think he was in the tra- – I, I, I don't know, honestly. Did you no. see him? Like, well, no, help me. Where would you see him? I don't him? think I saw him. I, may, I might have seen, like, set pictures uh, online as opposed to him actually being in the trailer. But you know who we haven't talked about who made uh, an appearance in the trailer? Uh, Riz Ahmed? No, not that guy. <laughs> well, no, Riz. Well, I just want to. Well, I'm just going to step on you for a second. Riz Ahmed is getting a lot of uh, burn right now for his work in The Night of on HBO. Um, he's like the. Well, we don't know if he's a protagonist or if he's a bad guy, but um, he's the main uh, player in The Night of, and he's listed in the cast list for Rogue One. So I'm sorry. Who who'd you see? You know, he's very famous. He wears a dark helmet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Right, right. You know, we got we got an actual glimpse of Darth, our buddy Darth from the first. You know, not not. I, it's it's hard now because if I say the first series, someone's going to be like, "Do you mean the prequels or do you mean the original Star Wars films?" And of course, I mean the original Star Wars films, even though he was also in the prequels. Why, why are you um, arguing with an imaginary troll? <laughs> like you're just arguing <laughs> with an imaginary troll. Just I just, don't know why you have credibility. Why. You just just say it, say it, yeah, say you know. the Star Wars thing. Well, yes. Well, Darth Vader's in the trailer. Yay. I yeah. was very happy to see him. Yeah, it's it was really weird. Um I thought the entire trailer was amazing in that it didn't have that slick, overly clean look of pretty much all the films except in my opinion Empire Strikes Back, which is the best Star Wars film of all time. All other films are second, third, fourth, fifth deficient. They just don't stand up. It's all about Empire Strikes Back. So Rogue One already looks like possibly my second favorite Star Wars film just because it's dirtier. So that's why when they showed Darth Vader at the end, it it almost looked like some weird parody scene. I don't know. Like maybe it's just me. Maybe the, the hater in me. I got a little Star Wars hate in me. So you know what might be contributing to that? 
feeling is the new diversity in the new films where, you know, in The Force Awakens, you have, you know, a female lead, you have uh, a Oscar Isaac, who's Latino, and you have John Boyega, who's, you know, black. And then in Rogue One, you just have everybody. Because, like, as we've mentioned, we have Forrest Whitaker, we have um, Donnie Yen, we also have Jiang Wen, who is um, pretty famous also in China. He's done movies with uh, Zhang Nemo, uh, Diego Luna, Riz Ahmed. It's, it's a pretty veritable rainbow, but that was lacking. Like, at least in human characters, it was lacking for the original series and the prequels. So wait, so I'm, how's that have to do with my Star Wars thing? I mean, my, um, I feel like the look of the new Star Wars, like, uh, this new series that they're doing is just like the makeup of, of the cast is just so different that to to see it. Oh, I get you. you. So, so seeing a piece of the old Star Wars was jarring in terms of context. I got you. You know what? That may be true. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was a very long-winded way to kind of get to that point. But just, you know, I think everything about the new series, just in terms of the makeup of the people who populate the Star Wars world, looks so different now than it did from... Uh, and it makes sense. It makes sense of where we've progressed as a society. But it just looks different now than it did from the 1970s and even the early 2000s. So I think just seeing Darth in there, while also cool, because I also had that feeling that you did, that it was a little jarring. And the delicate balance that they were able to strike between not like between being true to the look of Star Wars, meaning the ships, um, even when they go into warp looks the same. A lot of those little touches are, are the same, but again, it's dirty. It's grittier. I'm very excited for this. I'm not, I was not excited about The Force Awakens. I thought it was a decent film, but I wasn't excited to go see it. I wasn't, I'm not anticipating the next installment of that particular thread. This I'm excited about. I can't wait to see this. This seems like th- this is the Star Wars. Like after the first three films, like the original from the mm-hmm. 70s, this is what I was hoping for as the next, you know, the sequel or the next iteration of Star Wars. This is what I was hoping for. Like all the prequels. No. Force <laughs> Awakens. No. This finally to me is where like, this is the real thing. This is where we really pick up from. So I was cautious about the force awakens cause you know, low expectations are, are the best for things like that. And after being pleasantly, I was very happy with the force awakens, which is like, I know you can't fathom that, but, uh, after that, I actually have more faith going into Rogue One. Like, I feel like it's in good hands. And so moving on from science fiction in a galaxy far, far away, we want to talk about science fiction that's a little more earthbound. Um, we found a story that is, I guess it harkens back to the film Minority Report. Um, Vic, you have, can you just break it down real quick? So the U.S. police are they're you know they're turning to machines and algorithms and machine learning in in particular to kind of predict who among them may be at risk of bad police behavior so it's so it's basically like minority report for police yes uh, instead of having precogs who will predict which one of the the public may commit a crime it's turning it inward at themselves and looking at which police officer may be at a higher risk of, you know, uh, potentially shooting someone that they shouldn't or 
<laughs> Isn't that supposed to be like on the job application? Do you like to shoot people for no reason? No? Yes. Check one. <laughs> well, you know, ideally that would be on uh, an application, but I don't think that that's what they have. Uh, so it's so, so hard they have to apply machine learning to the problem. Yeah, yeah. So the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department in North Carolina is implementing a pilot system. Basically, the University of Chicago has a team that's led by this guy named Rayid Ghani, and they're putting stats into a machine learning system. And they do things where they churn numbers and, like, they go through records of, like, which police officer has had a previous misconduct or which police officer has used guns during tense situations. And, like, they churn the numbers and how many – or, like, the other thing that they look at is how many suicide or domestic violence calls they've responded to in a certain period of time. And what they say is that retroactively they've caught 48 out of – 83 adverse instances between 2005 and now. So, and that is actually 12% more than the the Charlotte Mecklenburg. That's that's a mouthful. So wait, Charlotte. so I'm confused. So the adverse instances, what are adverse instances? What did they catch? So uh, based on, I think this is based on the study, they caught retro, like retrospectively. Like if, it's very hypothetical. So it's, if this instance had been in place, they would have identified the people who were the causes of adverse incidents. What do they mean by adverse incidents? I don't know. That so they didn't different. actually catch people or they're saying no. they would have caught people? They would have caught people okay. in a, like they ran the numbers and it retro, this is their words, retrospectively caught like maybe 50 like 12% more than what early intervention systems uh, that they already had in place had. Because as it is now, many police, uh, many police departments, they basically put in a early intervention system where people look at uh, police officers and they go, that guy looks a little stressed. Let's go talk to him and like de-stress him. So it's very much reliant on human judgment. So they're saying that because they have all these records and because they run the statistics and they've identified risk factors, they can potentially identify which police officers are at higher risk of having bad judgment on a given day. So there's no like red ball for murder, you know, black. But, you know, that's from the film, you know, uh, yeah. Minority Report, when there's like a murder, the red ball comes and everybody starts freaking out. We have to go get to this person's house before they commit the murder, that kind of thing. So this is just kind of – it seems like this is almost like analytics and they're yeah. s almost selling this as a predictive, I guess, machine learning algorithm system. So it seems like if you want to bring, bring, bring it back to Minority Report, like one of the themes of Minority Report was that once people are aware of their future, they have the ability to change it. Uh, I think that was like one of the main things that led to the climax of the film. So I guess their thinking behind this is if you can identify a police officer as a risk and let that police officer know that they are a risk of committing some blunder on the field, then they have the choice potentially to not do that because they have been made aware that they are at a higher risk. Okay. So when I saw this story, I was fascinated because any 
system put in place designed to kind of lower incidents of police misconduct and, you know, possible violent or, you know, unfortunate outcomes between the civilian populace. I, you know, I'm in favor of systems to help that. But as usual, uh, futurist that I am, I, I went through the next logical steps and I came up with the theory that this is all kabuki theater. This is all theater to normalize applying this system to us. Hmm. So in other words, like if you, as a police department, put into practice this system and say, look, our cops, our police officers, all their data, all their incidents are put into this machine learning system, and we have a predictive analysis of what they will and won't do, and we act on those uh, you know, indicators. Once that's normalized, it kind of legitimizes the next step to say, well, we'd like to apply this to the city. And so then that puts you in a situation where, let's say, your teenage son or daughter is walking into a store and maybe a cop shows up and you go um, and, you know, let's just say they're using this machine learning in conjunction with, I don't know, tracking people's location, whereabouts, you know, time, you know, for school and, you know, work and offices and all that, that kind of thing. And they just show up at the store and say, uh, and maybe the proprietor is like, well, why are you here? Well, uh, you know, uh, Bob Jones, who's the son of Adario, uh, is here. And based on our predictive analysis, uh, today seems like a day that, you know, he may be under stress and he may be at the breaking point for stealing something. So we figured we'd just hang around and, and see, you know, or talk to him. You know what that scenario that you described just reminds me of is like the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy. In trying to prevent something, you actually cause it to happen. So let's say, you know, your son, Bob Jones, who some for some reason has a name that's different than yours. I married Jessica Jones. You know what? The Netflix hero. Good choice. She's Good my choice. boo. Yes. Um, you kicked Luke Cage out of the picture and married yes. Jessica Jones. And, and our and son decided to take her name instead of mine because she's stronger than me and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you should be okay with that. And so, um, so let's say Bob Jones is going to a store and just because... You know, these uh, police, whatever, have come up and said, you know what, you are a heightened risk factor because of X, Y, and Z for shoplifting. And then the store owner goes, well, well, I don't want you in my store. I need you to get out. And this happens to Bob Jones constantly because with every store that he's turned away from, his risk factor increases because of whatever algorithm. But you know and what that sounds like? What? It sounds like current reality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I yeah, mean, the only difference is a, a so-called fancy schmancy machine learning algorithm involved. But otherwise, it sounds pretty much like what happens now. Yeah. And maybe it's just adding another layer onto what happens now. But let's say Bob Jones, let you know, we're living in a more progressive society where we're trying to, at least on the surface, fix these things. And let's say you just add another layer of technology into it that just paradoxically brings us backwards instead of forwards because now you've given the machines the authority to say that xyz person you actually have statistical data to back up your backwards profiling yeah that, and that, that's actually happening more and more uh nowadays where you are met with some authority figure and you try to reason with them and they say well the computer says you know thus and so and 
that's supposed to be the end of the discussion. Well, the computer says this. And I am very wary because, yeah, you're right. It's like it could put us in a position where everything is legitimized through statistics, through mm-hmm. uh, probability. And, then, you know, there's like a real problem with making numbers your god. Because, you know, just based on this current pilot study that they've done, the thing that jumped out at me was the fact that they were basing everything off of records. Let's say you have a new police recruit. That police recruit has no records to indicate whether or not he's a risk factor. You're going to base how you judge him going forward on the statistics of police officers who on the surface look like him or resemble him in some way. But, you know, you and I are different. Uh, People who look like me are different from me, just on a surface thing. People who have the similar background, education, and socioeconomic status, you know, we may look the same and come from similar, like, circumstances, but we are all individuals with our own individual personalities. And these statistics, when you reduce people to numbers, don't account for that. You know, one thing I'm curious about, so... Moving away from my uh, hysterical conspiracy theory that this is all just a ploy to normalize it for police so they can put it, you know, for the rest, you know, give it to the rest of the populace, apply it to the rest of the populace. I'm curious, just um, let's take it away from this system being used for police officers and let's say it's being used just for employees. And I mean, I know there's already things like I think Microsoft used this thing called stack ranking. Um, so there are various systems. I know at, um, uh, what is it? Zappos, they have a system. The name escapes me, but they they have this kind of system, uh, for their employees that kind of ranks how people, like what kind of people they want to keep and, you know, how they're doing. But let's just say, I mean, this whole kind of machine learning approach is applied to just workers in general. Then what? Well, then, you know, you best game the system and get your numbers up and <laughs> like, yes, game but, the you said what are you is that like a hood geek uh who are you just right now you um, best game the system and get your numbers up son <laughs> <laughs> well you know like if you reduce everything to num, like there are just certain things that are not quantifiable and trying to quantify everything i think is it's uh it's a smokescreen because you know you, let's say you have all this data and all this whatever, this information that you've like collected, that doesn't actually give a holistic loot, like look at the root of the problem or solve anything, really. Like, just to bring it back to this police example, okay, so you found people who are uh, potentially bigger risk factors, so what do you do with that information? And like, just because you found that, does this give people an excuse to say stuff like, oh, hey, guess what? Um, we have this system in place. We're identifying the risk factors, so we don't have to take care of the 90,000 other problems that contribute to this one big problem right. that are like institutional and go back forever. Yeah, and, and another way of looking at it is how about before applying the system to the troops, you apply the system to the managers, to the to the leaders. So apply that algorithm and that, you know, kind of warning system, that predictive analysis system to the judges. You know, I saw, this is kind of completely aside, but I saw a very interesting video uh, last week where um, a woman was brought into a courtroom and she had no pants on. And there was a female judge and the judge was about to kind of like go through ruling. And the judge said, hold on. 
you know, you have no pants on the, you know, the, what's going on here. And then the judge started questioning everyone, the lawyer, uh, the bailiffs, every, and then she got on the phone and she called the jailhouse and she just said, you know, this is unacceptable, you know, get this woman some pants. And apparently the woman was also denied, uh, feminine hygiene products for, I think a, a day or so. And, you know, what jumped out at me was, wow, this is an amazing judge. This, this mm-hmm. judge is like, in the right job. Thank God for this judge. However, it also made me think, okay, that this even happened probably means that there are a ton of judges that would just let this pass. We just say, okay, uh, you know, I guess whatever happened, happened. You have no pants, no feminine hygiene products for a couple of days. You know, you, you're, you're probably in the wrong anyway. And I think what it was, the, the other thing, it was that the crime wasn't even like assault or robbery. I think it was something having to do with a ticket or something. I hate to be very vague here and not have the facts here, but it just, the reason I bring it up is just, it makes me think of applying the system to the people who really control our reality, meaning the judges, the managers, the CEOs, as opposed to just the police who, yes, they're enforcers and they're the troops in terms of being out there on the front lines in terms of public order. But um, they're put out there by the people in charge, you know, yeah. the, the people who hire them, the people who train them, you know. So how about applying it to them is the first thing I'm thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I guess in New York, a recent example of that might be, you know, our buddy Bill Bratton, who recently resigned because, you know, he's been he's he's credited with the broken windows theory. Like if you guys don't listening out there don't know what the broken windows theory it's just uh the idea that if you let a window just a window be broken then all sorts of other more violent crimes will happen because you've allowed a window to be broken so he would so i guess the last couple of years like if you haven't seen the break dancers on the subway it's because he's decided that break dancers on the subway somehow lead to graffiti and somehow lead to violent crime so get rid of the break dancers and the buskers on the New York subway and you eliminate crime. And, and and this has been proven by the Netflix series, The Get Down. Breakdancing leads to crime. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's I, I used to breakdance, so it's absurd to me. Yeah, of course it no, doesn't. No. But like this whole idea, like I think the thing about the whole weird mislogic of the broken windows theory is that it puts it on like the public. It's like your fault if you're not keeping things clean or whatnot. And it just completely eliminates the idea that there is a systemic uh, problem that could be contributing to this. And like it completely absolves people like Bill Bratton or like the mayor or just people in power of their role in creating all of this. And it's, it's just to kind of like go with what you said, like we need to hold these people who are, you know, making the decisions and building these systems, like they're equally responsible. And what was it? Like, I think it was a year ago. I don't, I don't know the exact time, but there was like a group of Swedish police officers who were in New York City and there was a, a mentally ill man or something like that on the subway system. And because the way they teach police in Sweden is to de-escalate a situation before using violent force, they were able to just like calm the dude down and talk to everyone talk to him and you know nobody was hurt in any instance uh my memory is different they actually had to uh 
tackle him and restrain him on the ground. Well, That's they did, my memory. But they did it. They did <laughs> right. it in a way. They did it gently. Gen- as gently as possible. And throughout right. the entire time, right. they were talking him down. At no point did they feel the need right. to like beat him into submission. Right. What really troubles me about this whole thing? Hey, let's you know. Hopefully, this system they have in place will help decrease. Uh, incidences of police malfeasance or, you know, brutality. But what really concerns me is just, again, this idea that machine learning algorithms, software can somehow intervene Mm. between humans and make everything okay, as opposed to us working on our humanity. And that's kind of where I think technology ends and doesn't have a solution. You know, some not everything is addressable by science and technology. Some things have to just be addressed human to human. Well, you know, that's true. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to see where the merits of this might go. And to that effect, this pilot program that started in that started in North Carolina, they've actually expanded it and they're testing it in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, as well as the Knoxville Police in Tennessee. So we may see how that works out in two very vastly different populations. And thus began RoboCop. <laughs> that's, that's, this is the first steps. This is how it happens, people. This is how it happens. Um, so, yeah, so with that, we're going to call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can also check us out on YouTube. We also post episodes on the YouTubes. And uh, with that, uh, this has been Adario Strange here with Vic Song. And we will see you in the future. <laughs>